Yes, I'm speaking to Dr. Lindbergh Simpson. He's a good friend of mine. He's a general surgeon. Among many, many other accolades, he does his medical or his surgical practice at Santa Clara Medical, which is at Winchester Business. He's quite experienced. A very good guy, very nice guy. Been for too many years to count, so I won't get into all of that. And then keep with my theme where I'm trying to speak to and have some inter interesting Jamaican wellness conversations. I was thinking about something, Ludi, that occurred at my practice wherein I hadn't seen a patient in a long while, and the, the person really literally looked like half of the individual. They had to inform me. The voice sounded familiar, but looked totally different. And mm -hmm. I, I was really impressed, and I would say, even reading about it, but this instance and others, it's one of the very few things in medicine that has impressed me so much as this because that woman was not doing well at all. Not only diabetic, but hypertensive and a host of other arthritic and host of other. They told her she couldn't have children and a host of other issues and all those problems, needed to say, went away. And, and that background, I was thinking deeply about it. I remember we were having a little discussion that you do this kind of work. So hence this conversation, just to give you a little uh, idea behind where this came from. But I was just wondering, because I do get as I have several patients, I would say over 150 kilos, over 300 pounds, and their BMIs, that's body mass index, is pretty high up, above, I would say above, above obese, but maybe not morbidly obese, as in... The question really I get is, would they qualify? Well, the other question is how much money, but how do they go about this? Would they qualify on that kind of thing? Could you shed some light on that? Thank you very much, Ryan. Uh, good night to my good friend, Dr. Ryan Wan, and good night to everybody who's listening in uh, to this conversation. Well, whatever time of day you're listening, <laughs> thank you very much for um, spending the time with us. So, Yes, I, I I understand what happened with you, Ryan, because that is kind of how I got involved in this area of surgical practice. The what we call bariatric surgery, or you know, some people may be exposed to it as weight loss surgery or metabolic surgery. And those all those terms kind of refer to the same thing. And they refer to medical or rather surgical procedures where the surgeons attempt to enforce weight loss. Um, how do we do that? Well, there are two common techniques. We do it by what we call um, restrictive operations where we decrease the size of the stomach and limit how much the patient takes in. Or sometimes there are some patients who we need to had what we call a malabsorptive component where um, we rearrange the intestines so that not only do patients eat less, but they also don't absorb all the food that they eat. And the, the effect of these operations, yes, we induce um, a caloric deficiency, which helps patients to lose weight, but some of the benefits, we are not 100% sure exactly why we happen, but we know for a fact they happen. And I'll say that because 
oftentimes in my patients who have surgery, you know, I have a patient who had surgery um, just maybe three weeks ago, had been diabetic for years, hypertensive for years, joint issues like you recall with your patient. And, you know, when I saw her after surgery, I see them um, early after surgery, just about in the first or second week after surgery. And she remarked that, you know, this patient is very well informed. She's a teacher and she had a physician in the family. She had not taken any sugar medication since surgery. And she had been checking her blood sugar levels and the highest it went up to is eight. She had not taken any pressure medication. And these things were all under control, even before they lose weight. So there is a lot to the practice of bariatric or weight loss surgery, which we don't understand yet because that practice is only about 40 to 50 years old since we have been doing it and doing it appropriately. But we do know it makes a significant improvement. I'll just share one anecdote before I pause and let you come in again. I recall... Um, about 16 years ago, when I got started down this road, um, you know, this was not my intended career path when I entered surgery. I, I, you know, at the beginning thought I wanted to do something else like vascular surgery or some other area of surgery. But I recall going on an elective to um, Trinidad and encountering a patient with a doctor who did this kind of surgery. And speaking to that surgeon, that patient, because that patient made it into my, um, before you graduate from surgery, you have to write a book outlining different procedures and discussing different aspects. So that patient and that procedure made it into my book. So when I was speaking to him, he outlined to me the difference that surgery had made in his life, where for years before he could not exercise diabetes, hypertension, um, peptic ulcer, a range of metabolic issues. He had been hospitalized twice in the year leading up to the surgery. And he said to me, Doc, without that surgery, I would have died. When I was speaking to him before I came back home to Jamaica, it was two months later, he was off his sugar tablets where he was on about three or four pressure tablets. He said he was on half tablet of one medication. And for the first time in 11 years, he had started exercising. He said, Doc, this was the best thing ever happened to me because if I had not done this, I'm sure I would have died. So it was that seeing the effect, the real, the tangible effect it has on patients is where you know that this is a big deal. This is important. And the final thing about who qualifies, well, certainly you know, patients who are overweight should be evaluated to see if they qualify because the requirements are changing, but certainly what is well established is patients who have a body mass index greater than 40. And for the listeners who are not um, clear on the body mass index, that's a measurement we take, a crude measurement looking at you're comparing your weight to your height. It's not perfect, but it is easy to do and very simple to use. So if yours is greater than 40 um, kilogram per meter squared, that's the unit, then this surgery should be considered an option for you. And you should be talking to your doctor about whether this surgery is right for you. 
if your BMI is greater than 35, but you are diabetic, hypertensive, high cholesterol, osteoarthritis, sleep apnea. These are all conditions which we know are directly related to obesity and can be impacted by surgery. You too should begin having a conversation with your physician about whether this surgery is an option for you because it has been shown to make patients healthier. And the, the final thing I'll pause after this is one of the astonishing more recent findings of the impact of obesity is related to the risk for cancer and the outcome of patients who are diagnosed with cancer where obese patients are definitely more at risk for a variety of cancers, including the common ones like breast, ovarian, etc. And if you compare 100 patients who are not obese with these cancers to 100 patients who are obese. The obese patients do worse. So particularly patients who have this strong family history and are also struggling to maintain a healthy weight, they should be considering this procedure as well. But I'll pause there, Ryan, in case. <laughs> no, I mean, no, I'm very interested for me. I'm very passionate, especially that last point, which I hope we can get back to this. And the fact sure. that we don't have a lot of time. But I, you, you mentioned the types, the broad groups of procedures. What type do we do locally? And how do you advise patients as it pertains to that? Right. So, I mean, there are a few surgeons operating locally. In my practice, I do the sleeve gastrectomy as the most common procedure, which has a restrictive component and also has, I didn't mention before, the endocrine component. Because when the sleeve gastrectomy, we remove, we resect, we cut out about 70 to 80% of your stomach. Not the fat, as patients often say, Doc, you're going to cut out this fat. We don't actually cut out the fat, but the program that you start, we it's one of the most comprehensive um, procedures I do in terms of the workup. We do a very extensive medical, check all your parameters to make sure you don't have any thyroid issues, any hormonal issues, anything which could be contributing to your weight loss. And we also check, you have to see an internist to evaluate, hey, are you strong enough to have this procedure because um, obese patients tend to be more at risk when they're undergoing surgery, risks of things like um, blood clots or, you know, heart attacks. So we really want to make sure that we do everything we can to minimize their risk before surgery. So we do the, so I was mentioning the sleeve gastric, which is restrictive, but also as an endocrine component where that 80% 80% of the stomach remove. That part of it, the stomach stimulates a hormone that we call ghrelin, which helps to um, tell your body that you are hungry. So it, it helps to drive you to eat. It's called the hunger hormone. And it's secreted in an area of the stomach, predominantly called the gastric fundus, has a lot of those cells. So when we remove the fundus, one of the benefits of this operation is yes, unlike a diet where you know you really need a lot of willpower and if you don't concentrate really hard and focus, you're gonna get up and eat everything in the middle of the night after fasting all day. This surgery, you eat a small amount, you feel full, you don't feel like you want more. And also 
the usual hormones just telling you, hey, I'm hungry and I need to eat, the levels of that hormone are decreased. So oftentimes, particularly in the post-op period, patients will tell me, hey, you know, I don't really feel that hunger drive that I used to feel like I need to eat. So that is one of the benefits of the surgery. So we do that one, the sleeve, but we also do the gastric bypass, which um, it is both restrictive where we divide the stomach and create a very small stomach so you feel that restriction as well. But then we also reroute the small intestine so that a significant portion of the food you do eat is not absorbed. So your body doesn't absorb everything because we kind of short-circuit a part of the intestine and get the food into the intestine down in the middle rather than the beginning so that you don't absorb all of those, all of the food that you would normally eat. You know, Ludi, I remember when we were training, even in med school and even when I was doing my Torah duty in surgery, I don't remember the more times you incise the intestine, it could be problematic. So yeah. the, the, the side effect complication rate with with one, the former versus the latter, is there any difference or? Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, um, so the sleeve is a shorter surgery, quicker, um, and less complications because, you know, both with both surgeries, we recommend uh, multivitamins, essentially lifelong for patients, but you might more likely get away with missing a month or two with the sleeve because we are short-circuiting the small intestine, the gastric bypass, you really have to adhere to that, um, the multivitamin regimen because you may have nutritional complications. The sleeve, the gastric bypass, because it creates multiple anastomoses, you can have some issues related to there where you know the two intestines that are put together don't heal the way they could. You can also have adhesions or um, obstruction because you know you're bringing part of the intestine up to the other, and bowel can get stuck in places. So there are complications which are more specific to the bypass, which is part of the reason why. For the majority of women, I do the sleeve because the sleeve is, the weight loss is greater with the bypass, but the sleeve does give very good and very acceptable weight loss for many women. There are some patients, though, who um, you might prefer to do the bypass or might not want to do the sleeve. Those who have severe reflux, one of the side effects of the sleeve is that it can cause or make re reflux worse. So people who are having that issue, um, the sleeve may not be the best option for them and they should probably consider uh, another option like the gastric bypass. And, and other than those patients, when the weight loss is uh, required could be greater, so you are over 45, I don't know if you've ever done any of those BMI uh, patients. Yes, man, quite a lot. We have done BMI. Uh, the heaviest patient. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, uh, we've done quite a few BMI over 50s. Uh, the heaviest patient we did, she started out with her body weight was, uh, I think, over 450. Her BMI was over 70. 
Um, but she did reasonably well with the preoperative weight loss. We go for you know approximately three months of preoperative weight loss, and it came down. I think she was uh, this is a couple of years back, like four thirty thereabouts before surgery, and um, you know to be fair, since the pandemic. Um, we have kind of, she hasn't really come back and I need to reach out to her, but she had been, I think, um, under just like 290 something, I think was where she had gone the last time when she came up because we follow them more closely in the first year. After that, it's usually an annual follow-up, but I don't think, I think she's missed the last two. So I need to reach out to her, but things have been a little unusual since the pandemic and um, not the, more than a few patients have um, not kept the follow-up as closely. But yes, we have done patients with BMI greater than 50 um, and more because, um, you know, we, we have set our cutoff limits as 550 just because we want, in case there were to be problems, to be able to evaluate them with a CT scan and the CT machine uh, here, that was the limit as told by the radiologist, 550. Yes. And understand, not being facetious, but some of those bigger individuals have to use the animal CTs, like when you go into the first world. That's not joking, that's really like the ones that... That, that has been said. I yeah. mean, what really happens at most of the bigger centers, um, they will have some... It's really the bed that can sustain the weight. And oh, I, I think... See. Certainly in the beginning, that was where it was, but yeah. a lot of centers have ordered special reinforced beds because, you know, and I'll say it's unfortunate that there are some things in medicine which are not science-based and there's a lot of stigma attached. And the yeah. issue of weight has been one which has been, uh, there's been a lot of stigma attached. And for a long time, physicians never sought to treat people who had difficulty losing weight or people who were obese. They thought this was of their own making. And, you know, that practice, unfortunately, still lives on. It's so unfair, even by the term, um, even the term morbid obesity, which we tried to move away from and try to, for me in my own practice, I prefer to refer to patients who have the BMI greater than 40 as being severely obese. Yes. Because that's the only thing that makes sense. People who have um, a very severe form of skin cancer or colon cancer, we don't say morbid colon cancer. I'm not You're sure. Quite right. I never thought of it. But, yeah, mm. why did they put that word morbid in there if not for to exert, you know, to further stigmatize people who are having difficulty um, keeping a healthy weight? So. And one of the unfortunate things I'll say, and for most people who have struggled with weight issues, um, unfortunately, it's not equal and it's not fair. Like you don't, all patients who are overweight don't consistently eat more than patients who are of a regular weight. What we do know is that patients may have a period where they overeat and they get to a certain weight. And it becomes difficult for them to lose. So even though they may not be, they may have changed the pattern of eating, they still cannot get back down to where they were before. So if, you know, say, for instance, you have 
I yeah, I don't want to stereotype too much, but say you have a young lady who's working hard, struggling, and under a lot of pressure. And for some reason, for a period of time, uh, her weight goes up. She's up to 280, 300 pounds because, you know, because of the nature of what she was life at the time, work, etc. She was eating in a, probably in the way that was not ideal. Even if she changes her diet, goes back to eating healthy vegetables, smaller portions, it's going to be difficult for her to get back down to the way she was before, you know, life did all these things to her. Mm-hmm. So oftentimes people generalize and say, oh, that person doesn't want to lose the weight when that is not a fear generalization of what's happening in that person's life. Exactly right. I, I encounter that almost daily, you know, and my Ludian, I, I must say, I more, I go with, well, on my end, I just need to say that we definitely try and people are, are tired of hearing this, but tell people that and exercise and then that those terms can mean anything to anybody. And interesting, I was exactly. Talking, <laughs> exactly, you know what I mean, Lori? And mm-hmm. interesting, I was talking to a nutritionist and I asked her, what's, uh, do you have a favorite diet? She said, the favorite diet is a balanced diet. So it's not there are several that are very popular now where you restrict carbs or you restrict mm-hmm. protein or you restrict and evidently the science says they don't like any of those they would prefer you to literally do some version of that five small meals in which mm-hmm. you have a little of everything and right. you can incorporate what she does like which this is just for completion is if you are desiring to lose weight and you want to look a certain way, she recommends weight training because not to look particularly muscular because that way, especially she was using an example of people that are thin, they can dictate where the weight goes. And she said in the overweight person, you can tend to, it's not an exact sense as, as you mentioned earlier as well, but it is something that you can do. And also, I do get asked, this again, I love to hear your thoughts on this, the medications, are there any that we like? Well, I say we like none, but there is one that was fairly popular, and there's actually a generic around for it, Zenical. Yes. Right. So that one is still the one that they that we you get us to prescribe. There was another one and it had some cardiac complications, I believe, and that was pulled. It's called Dinintel. If anybody yeah. wants to look up that. And that worked in a different way. This one blocks the fat you consume, a portion thereof. And unfortunately, it will send it to the restroom a lot. And mm-hmm. the weight loss, it hasn't really done great. Uh, as I understand it, financially, because weight loss is not really all that great. You're still going to have to do the diet and exercise. And just recently, these diabetic medications really have been getting popular. I notice mm-hmm. these things, you know, I also have Google, so these things populate our feeds. And right. there is that one, it's, a, I think it's a GLP-1 agonist. And I don't to bore a very poor internist, so not my strong suit in, in medicine, mm-hmm. but the essence of it is that it 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 works, I believe, opposite to insulin, I think. 
Yeah, because it's a good colon agonist. And the long and short, it's the problem with it, it's an injectable and it's not really for that purpose. And again, the weight loss is not that great. So you can see where the medical aspect of it, in my opinion, is not as robust as this wonderful thing you can do if 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 you qualify per what you're saying, you know. Right. You know? So the, the the my my take on the all the medications for obesity is that I don't prescribe any because the treatment of obesity is a marathon. It's not a sprint. So even for early starts, if you do get some weight loss with it, what happens? Because the challenge with you know the what the metabolic surgeons will tell you is that the problem is not losing weight. So if the patient, if any patient has a three months there and they want to get into like a fat farm or go on a crash thing, you can get to lose weight. Surgery is not the only way to lose weight. Um, patients can do, you know, there are different fat diets or crash things that you can do three, six months and you can lose weight. The problem with people who are severely obese is keeping that weight off. And that is the thing that gives surgery the big advantage. And that's one of the reasons why, at the moment, I don't do the intragastric balloon because the longest duration of time recommended for the balloon is a year. And if you only want to get slim for a year, then I am not the person to treat you. Um, what oh, what we recommend the surgical procedures because it is not minor surgery it is major surgery and we are going to be making I mean the gastric bypass is touted as being reversible but I am yet to encounter a situation where anybody would want to go in and reverse the bypass um, but these procedures are intended to be permanent because what we are trying to do is permanently affect how your body processes the calories that you take in. Um, and it's, it's a serious thing. And it's, it's something which we hope to, that if you know most of the time periods which we monitor success, at least for the next five years, right? because surgery is just a tool. It's not a guarantee. It's possible for patients who have bariatric surgery to put on weight. But we believe that if we can do this permanent alteration, it will give you the tools that you need to regain control. We think, you know, maybe get your weight back down to the set point from some earlier time so that you can lose these 60, 80, 100 pounds that you need to take off and get you back into a place where you can be having a healthy diet be able to exercise because that becomes a challenge for people when they become obese. And then if you can maintain these things, you know, for five years or so where <clears throat> maybe the severe restriction you felt at the beginning, you don't feel that, but you are still into the habit of having more modest portions and, you know, being able to be more active and exercise. The activity I definitely recommend because whether or not you are obese. There have been multiple studies looking at the benefit 
of being active on several parameters of your daily life, including cognitive processing, development of things like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and stuff. So the activity definitely we want to encourage and the, the challenge, I don't encourage the tablets because you know, you're going to have to be taking them for years. And then the additive effects of these medications, one, they become less effective over time. And then, you know, like Nintel, we found out that they had cardiac issues as well. So. Okay. The, describe for them the, the gastric balloon, Ludi, if you can. Okay. So the, with the gastric balloon, um, the practitioner does like an endoscopy and places an inflatable device into the stomach. Now, because that, almost like a balloon, if you imagine yes. a balloon, so there's a device which can be filled up um, with liquid usually um, in the stomach. Then what that does is, it's similar to like the surgical procedures, it makes you feel full, um, you know, more quickly. So instead of having a full meal, that entire box food or, a, you know, chicken, rice, whatever, after you have a small amount, your stomach feels like you don't, you can't take much more. And even throughout the day, because that balloon is there, it is making you, helping to make you feel full. So it decreases the amount you want to take. However, um, you know, what has been researched for them, it's not researched as a long-term device because we don't know what the long-term effects of having this inside the stomach can be. So they are usually recommended for six months or a year before removing them. Yes, and interestingly, I had a nurse who, this just came to me, she wore her mouth shut because she was getting married and she needed to get into this dress. So some of these things, I don't know the most advisable. Yeah, know, yeah. That, so that's that... ideal. I mean, uh, certainly there are, there might be a role. So if, you know, there are people, you want to get married and you want, you have six months, you want to lose 30 pounds so that these pictures, which are going to be there forever for the rest of your life, then certainly if I were to see a patient who only had like, you know, just overweight, not too bad, 30 pounds to lose and, has a date coming up in four or six months, whatever, I would say, hey, you know, maybe the balloon is a good option for you and you could reach out to the person who does that because that is a more specific with the understanding that what will probably happen to the person who has the balloon, they will achieve weight loss for a period, but then a year or two is sometime after. Mm -hmm. I recently met a patient last week who had the balloon and, you know, within about, this was about four months after removing it, had put on, you know, I would say maybe half of what had been lost. Wow. wow. This is very... so that's the challenge with the, um, the temporary methods. Uh, there's another temporary method which is no longer as popular now, but certainly when I was away on fellowship in Chicago, we used to do a lot of what we could, what was known as a lap band right. or the more medical norm, adjustable gastric banding. Mm -hmm. Thankfully, that was the most problematic of the procedures. And thankfully, it's no longer on the market because I can tell you, 
I got worried because it used to require intermittent adjustments for patients to continue to feel the restriction. And I remember the biggest clinic we had for that was before Thanksgiving, where people came in, took out all the fluids so they could eat a lot for Thanksgiving and then came back to fill it up. And I was like, um, I don't think this is an effective way to treat that condition. So, But thankfully, it's fallen out of favor in a lot of centers and no longer done um, widely, only a few places are putting in lab bands now. Right. And I have, I have a few follow-ups, and I know you have to go, but playing devil's advocate, we locally would say we are new. How are our results locally? You can compare yourself versus internationally. And... Uh, good question, because I am not sure if that comparison has been done broadly. Um, and I can't speak for all the people who do it. Um, in my practice, I would say without having formally looked at the figures, but most patients, internationally, it said, you know, between 60 to 70% of patients will lose about 60 to 70% of their excess weight. And that is, uh, I'll go into those figures. So let's say based on, uh, and these are all approximations, so patients shouldn't follow the exact numbers. But say I'm seeing a patient who is a young lady who's like 5'8", and she's weighing, I'm just going to use a round number, say she weighs 300 pounds. There are different weight charts and different ways to assess that, but let's say the weight chart says her at 5'8", she should really only weigh 150 pounds. So she has an excess, 150 pounds. Mm-hmm. Surgery will not get her down to 150. Um, no, with that almost never, ever happens unless there has been some complication. What we would be expecting is that if she has an excess like 150 pounds, she may lose anywhere to about 90 to 120 pounds. She may end up losing, let's go somewhere in the middle, about 100. So what we could expect, and the weight loss takes about a year. So she would take about, after about 10 months to a year, she would have lost maybe about 90 to 100 pounds and come down to like 210 pounds thereabout. And we would expect her to, stay at that weight, maybe give or take a five pounds here or there for at least five years. And then we would say that surgery has been a success. Um, I found in my patients at a year, <clears throat> most of them are able to lose up to about 60% of their excess weight loss and they keep it off. Um, and you know the complication rate has been good so far, uh, I have not <laughs> had any mortality. Um, I've had uh, two patients with some wound infection, um, some minor morbidity, but yeah. no mortality. And, you know, the majority of patients do lose their weight and keep it off. What I would say is that... Um, Whereas when I was on fellowship in Chicago, we would do several of these cases a day. So you do about four to six of these bariatric procedures a day. Um, uh, When I came back in 2011, it took a few years before we could get insurance approval. 
And you had mentioned in the beginning the cost. Mm -hmm. These procedures end up being very costly because we do them laparoscopic, which means we make some tiny incisions. Usually patients will get five to six small incisions on the anterior abdominal wall. So five to six small incisions on the abdomen instead of a big cut. And they, we do what we have to do that way. Patients go home within two to three days and they're not on any pain medication. As I said, most of them go home off of their sugar and pressure medication. So they go home on just a, a tablet for their stomach and something else for gas and something else for constipation. And that's what they go home with within two to three days. But the actual equipment we use in surgery is expensive. So um, that equipment um, by itself, without paying any of the doctors or the hospital, that can easily be in a six, seven hundred thousand dollars. So if you're doing the operation privately and you have no insurance, it could run you about two million thereabouts as a ballpark figure by the time the hospital is paid and the doctors are paid. If you have health insurance, however, and you have, like I said, your BMI over 40 or your BMI over 35, then, you know, and you have done what we call medically supervised weight loss for three months, in the majority of instances, we're able to get the insurances to cover, just like how they cover when you have another procedure, appendicitis, gallbladder, etc. And that usually depending on your policy, covers the majority of the cost, 60 to 80% up to um, for patients. We are, you know, two, they have two policies up to 90, 100% of the cost. So the upfront cost to the patient varies. If they have, if they have no insurance, it could be something in the ballpark of about 2 million. But if they have insurance, then it, gets more down to maybe you know a couple hundred thousand maybe three four hundred depending on the type of policy and patients who have hospitalization plan and stuff but the one of the things about the cost to look at for those patients who are actively paying for sugar and pressure medications it has been studied in the first world several times that the cost of the surgery, it pays for itself before the third year of the surgery. So somewhere between the second and the third year of surgery, if you add up what the patients would have paid for in their sugar and pressure medication, which they are no longer taking, then the surgery is actually cheaper. It is more cost-effective to do the surgery, come off these medications, and you know it may cost you more upfront. But if you wait by the third year, you'd have definitely been saving money. It would have cost you less to have had the surgery than to have kept taking these medications. Because some patients pay, you know, 30, 40,000, you know, a lot of money for the medications, particularly if they don't have insurance. Yeah. So exactly. that is one. Exactly yeah. right. In fact, I'll speak to somebody who reminds me of analogy, a patient, well, speaking to me them about solar and they were saying how they love it and it was a similar situation initial cost is ungodly but in your mind but it, it works out so well 
Right. Yeah, and I would argue it takes it's a much shorter time in this your example in the bariatric surgery for it to pay off. Right. So you, you see the benefit almost immediately. And there are some benefits which are harder to quantify, but they are there. But because your sugar and pressure are better, you are doing less damage to your kidneys, you're doing less damage to your heart. You're doing less damage to the blood vessels, to the brain, decreasing your risk of stroke and all these things. So there is that hidden benefit, which also adds value to the procedure. So you're less likely to have a hospitalization because of renal failure or heart attack or so, because your, you know, your sugar and pressure are better, under better control. Exactly right. So I know we're running out of time. I just have one or two left here, Rudy. In terms yeah. of it, when you look online, if you just Google the term, you will see a lot of patients with this excess skin that seem to be, well, some of them, it seems to be a bit problematic. Is there a way to address that or that, that has to be done later right. on? Right. So usually we, so that can be a problem depending on the patient's weight. Patients who are not that bad, say somebody's um, 70, 80 pounds overweight, maybe 100 pounds overweight, and you know they are going to be losing 60 to 70 pounds. Um, those patients have less of a persistent issue. And yes, um, if you are losing over 50 pounds, then there tends to be some amount of redundant skin. But some patients are comfortable with it. I've had patients who say, hey, doc, yes, it it is an issue where I can see that the skin, maybe there are some problem areas like the tummy, the what's overhang, what we call the panas medically, or sometimes the arms for the woman. But some patients, depend. it depends on how much weight you lose. And some patients are aware of it, but they don't think they need a procedure at all that is a minor in terms of all the other benefits patients who are bigger though patients who are losing 80 to 100 pounds they are more likely to have an issue because the amount of excess skin becomes greater and that can be a problem uh, what we recommend is certainly not doing anything for a year um, because it takes about a year for the weight to stabilize. So the thing about this procedure, if you are 300 pounds before, you won't wake up 200. You won't lose all the weight the same day, but you lose a little weight in and around the procedure and the preparation, and then gradually over the next 10 months to a year, you're losing weight, you know, about two to four pounds every, you know, one to two weeks thereabouts. So you keep losing the weight. And for the patients who have to take off, say, 80 to 100 pounds, they do have some issues with that redundant skin. What we usually recommend for them is continue doing what you're doing, keep moving, keep exercising, keep moisturizing the skin, because these are all things which help to preserve the tone and improve the tone. After you have gone a year and things are settled, you are very comfortable with how much you're able to eat, all these things. Then for those patients, we usually recommend that they consult a plastic surgeon and see what are the key areas and what needs to be done to make that less of an issue. But yes, for the patients who are significantly overweight, 
who do have to lose upwards of 100 pounds, the majority of those patients will require or at least benefit from some surgical procedure we call body contouring to deal with redundant skin after they have lost the weight. Well, I think we've done very well. I think I've stressed you out thoroughly, sir. I can't thank you enough. No problem. I just have one final question here, and it's just really me being curious as both of us work in this wonderful country, Jamaica, where unfortunately we have some challenges in healthcare. We have this enormous talent, in my opinion, not only medical doctors, but medical personnel, nurses, supporting staff. And in terms of surgery and in general, how do you think we can improve what we're doing out here locally? And any thoughts at all is really the question. Oh, that is a hard one. Um, you know, it's, I think one of the issues when I, some time ago, I had looked at it probably a couple of years ago, and I looked at the percentage of our budget which went to health compared to some other, what we'd call rich countries, there's a significant gap there. So one of the big issues in terms of uh, health for all is budget. But um, coinciding with budget is um, we have a big problem with shortage of medical professionals. So we have to improve the remuneration to the healthcare professionals, doctors, nurses, paramedical staff. Um, and, you know, sometimes too, just the organization and the structure of how things are being done. Uh, those, probably those, some of those issues are over my head, but I think definitely um, there is a cost to quality healthcare, if I think about the places where I think healthcare is probably the best in the world, those are places that have a very, very good budget for, you know, their tax rate is very high and a significant percentage of their budget goes to health. So I think maybe starting with more resources and then organizing the resources, those are some of the tools which are needed to improve. Yeah, that's, the, that's just my curiosity. I agree with you, Ludia, on that point. Mm-hmm. And I, I really I wonder about, for example, we already have NHF and it's there, for example. I don't know if that can be expanded. We have JADEP. I don't know if that can be expanded and so on. So the basic question that I'm just wondering about to entice these Friends with the nursing staff from not defecting as much. I don't know what can be done about that in lieu of increasing yeah. their pay significantly. It's really a hard question. It's just something that, and admittedly, I don't even know if or. I, I mean, I think both those things are positive. NHF and JADEP, I mean, allowing people to access medication at a reduced cost, definitely helpful. I think NHF has done some very meaningful uh, initiatives in the hospitals. As a matter of fact, you know, prior to COVID, we were in discussions and they had, you know, they were on board in terms of starting a pilot to see if we could offer um, 
bariatric surgery in the public healthcare system, particularly to those NHF customers who were using up a lot of the diabetic hypertensive medication. However, unfortunately, you know, that was in December 2019. <laughs> you right. know, 20 by February 20, yeah, the focus was predominantly on buying N95 masks. Yeah. So one of the things uh, I've kind of personally pledged uh, next year to try to see if we can encourage them to revisit that uh, initiative because, you know, the studies elsewhere show that this is cost effective. So there's no reason to think, at least maybe not for everybody, but certainly for people who are in danger in the public health system that this can be helped. So there are some things which make the process better. I think NHF in general and JADEP has done well to improve. But I think the entire healthcare system needs a lot more funding and maybe continued improvement of the organization. Well, I thank you, sir.